Good day, everyone. I'm Dr. James Ahrens, the ADHD author and veterinarian. Today I'm sharing my experiences as a horse vet, monitoring magnificently conditioned horses as they compete across breathtaking landscapes on long-distance races of 25, 50, and 100 miles. Called endurance rides, these contests require a combination of physical stamina and mental connection between the horse and rider over a long period of time. They are a team, and the challenge is to complete the grueling course with both the horse and rider intact. One rider sums up the experience, saying, A good rider does not ask of the horse more than is necessary for victory. He knows what his horse is capable of. He knows the horse's strengths. He can see and assess his opponents during races and change his riding tactic in an instant during a critical moment. Although the altruistic nature of a loving and experienced rider brings honesty to the ride, the fact remains these riders do overstress their horses, sometimes with deadly consequences. That's where vets come in. Horses are checked by qualified veterinarians and judges before, during, and after the ride. During each ride there are hold times, which vary in duration from a simple gait and go to one-hour rest holds. During these holds, the equine's physical and metabolic parameters are checked. The horse must pass the exam in order to continue on. Each horse must also pass a post-ride exam in order to receive credit for completing the course. To get us in the horse riding mood, I'm playing the song called A Horse With No Name, composed by America and sung by Mary McGregor and her Lena, Lunker, and Betsy bandmates, Joe Gelia and Rick Bear. Da 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 da
Thank you, Mary, Joe, and Rick. Now on to chapter 23, Equine Endurance Ride. It was spring of 1983, and I had been Dr. Brandt's associate for nine months. A horse association contacted me to see if I could be one of the vets at their Lake San Antonio Equine Endurance Ride. These rides are race competitions. Each horse and rider team signs up to compete in any of three categories, 25, 50, or 100 miles. Because a rider may push a horse too far and cause it to collapse, the horse must be stopped at various checkpoints to be assessed by a veterinarian. If the horse has started to limp, the team will be disqualified. Additionally, the crew checks the heart rate, and if it is above a certain threshold, the horse and rider must wait to be rechecked in five minutes. If the heart rate remains above the acceptable limit, the animal is deemed too stressed to continue, and the team disqualified. The capillary recovery time the CRT, is checked by lifting up the horse's lip to look at the color of the gums, to make sure the horse is not overstressing its circulatory system. Healthy gums are pink, 
and when the gums are pressed on with a finger, they become a blanched white color, which should quickly return to a healthy pink. If the CRT is too long, the team loses qualification. The overstressed horse pulled off the race. It is the job of the veterinarians to make sure there are minimal problems during such strenuous rides. These quick tests are the guideposts to ensure the equine participants stay healthy. I was a volunteer on trail rides when I was in vet school and helped the vets by monitoring the pulse and respiration of the horses as they came through the checkpoints. I vetted a previous ride at Lake San Antonio as a veterinary student, and now I was in a position of higher authority, where my opinion was much more relevant. However, I was still insecure about my experience level. During Friday check-in, the vets gather at the check-in point to wait for the horses and riders to drive up. After a horse unloads, it goes through the first checkpoint to make sure it is not overly stressed from transport and is in good shape to compete. During periods between these check-in times, the vets sip beer and talked amongst themselves. There was one fellow who graduated six years before I did. I remember how confident he was when we were talking about cases. I envied him and relished the moment I might finally become so sure. The weekend was going fine. It was Saturday night and the 25 and 50 mile races were finishing. Now we had to stay up through Saturday night to check out the 100 milers. We took shifts. There were six vets on the ride. If I had a worry or uncertainty, I found a fellow vet for advice. Eventually everyone finished the trip, so we all went to bed. Early Sunday morning there was unusual busyness. One of the horses on the 100 mile ride collapsed and died earlier. The vet who had done the monitoring vet check was understandably distraught, feeling he had failed to see the warning signs of impending disaster and was blaming himself for the death. That may have been the case, but it is also realistic to understand that the rider puts a lot of pressure on the vet to okay the horse through the checkpoint. I have seen riders tell the vet evaluating a borderline stress horse, he acts like this all the time at the end of the race, and therefore a questionable horse may be passed to continue. These riders have been working their horses many, many months to get to this point, and some were adept at under-emphasizing the possibility of a potential catastrophe to a veterinarian trying to expel them from the ride. As of my first year employment with Dr. Bryant came to an end, I needed to decide my future. I felt that practice offered too little large animal work, and I thought I did not have the confidence of the owner to help me through another year. I decided to evaluate other options, and the only alternative I entertained was to start my own equine ambulatory practice. I turned my keys over to Dr. Brandt on Thursday, June 30th, 1983. The next day, I began working on my own as a veterinarian and owner of Oak Country Veterinary Services. I started my own veterinary business with a bit of anxiety and trepidation. I surely did not want to become a business failure, but I hadn't positioned myself financially to go through an extended period of little income. I had solicited no veterinarian's advice, I had no outside financial support, and I had very little working capital. The only thing I had done was purchase a pickup truck, and I lived in a rented trailer for about $350 per month, with only a few monthly bills. An ambulatory practice seemed doable for me. I developed a simple business plan comprised of one sentence. Put a vet pack on the pickup truck, fill the vet box with supplies and equipment, and go forth to care for people's large animal needs. All I needed was my vet truck and a return address, a place to send and receive bills for clients and get drugs delivered. I guess I patterned this after Dr. Seeley's practice. He had a receptionist and a place to pick up new drugs as needed. My overhead was low, so when business was slow, 
there was little worries because the bills remained small. I decided not to limit the practice to horses, though. I'd also work on cattle, sheep, and goats. I spent $300 plus gas to buy the vet pack. It was a second-hand unit I found in L.A. The vet pack held all my equipment and supplies in the pickup. It had a water pump, which worked from a reservoir I filled up every day, providing me with water wherever I went on calls. I put an extra battery in the pack, rewired the 12-volt light system so I could see more easily at night, and set in a 12-volt refrigerator to store perishable drugs. The side doors dropped down to a horizontal position, and I'd use these surfaces like countertops to gather the tools and supplies needed for each call. I spent the rest of my seed money stocking my inventory of equipment and supplies. The drugs and supplies came from various pharmaceutical companies who catered to veterinarians by sending their representative around each month to visit the practices within their sales area. The local drug salesman didn't know I was starting a practice, and I was left to order through a mail-order catalog. This allowed me to have most of the drugs I needed for my startup. I filled the drawers with supplies and medicines I purchased from these companies, and I was in business for myself. I found a trailer to rent on a 240-acre ranch called Oak Country Ranch, and I asked Donna, the owner of the farm, if she'd allow me to use the name for my business. She had no problems, and after filing a fictitious business statement, I became the owner of Oak Country Veterinary Services. I met Nancy when I still had my apartment in town. She lived on an Arabian horse ranch and owned a gelding named Skipper. She was blonde, had white teeth, and a beautiful smile. I was interested. She was also interested, but seeing such promise in a future relationship, she refused to sleep with me until the second date. Nancy moved in soon after, and she helped me relocate to the ranch at Oak Country. This relationship looked promising, but was destined to fail, just like the handful of previous link-ups I tried to develop. Nancy's friend Phil helped find calls for me. His parents owned Paso Robles Answering Service, and Phil connected me with the animal owners needing a vet right away. There are some areas around Paso where horse people congregate, and soon enough word got out around town that there was a new vet ready to be of service. Through the entire summer, business remained on the slow side. I did the occasional call, but hadn't yet developed the broader client base I needed to support myself. I ordered custom invoices with my name and business on them. Nancy was living with me, and she took over billing, but there was no one to bill because no one had called. I was frustrated with the lack of business and disappointed in Nancy. She was a good housekeeper, but seemed content cocooning herself in our situation, and that worried me. With no projects of her own, besides making herself look cute, she didn't have any place to go during the day. I suspect I saw Mel's actions in Nancy, and this unsettled me and worried me deep down. It wasn't quite the same with Nancy. She wasn't watching TV all the time like Mel. It was her lack of vision, or her failure to articulate one. I realize now it was mostly my habit of not recognizing what she had to offer. All I knew was to be continuously engaged in something productive. It was my way of dealing with my ADHD, and I assumed everyone was like me. She bugged me, not having forward motion, so I told her she needed to find another place to stay. Lori, one of my horse clients, was pestering me to move my office closer to town, telling me I could set up an office at her place. Lori lived in a ranch-style house with a covered patio between the kitchen and the garage. It had an adjacent bedroom and was big enough for an office. She offered to be my secretary and office manager, handling drug orders and billing. I hired her, moved my business stuff to her place, and drove home to Oak Country Ranch every evening, still able to do most of my work from the truck. 
To let potential clients know who I was, I began writing articles on topics about horses. Many were published in a local newspaper called The Country News. And I developed slideshows. I gave a worming lecture to the Atascadero Vaqueros and presented breeding and foaling lectures to anyone interested, renting out the meeting room at the Paso Robles Inn. In the fall, I was invited to help vet the Tar Springs trail ride in Arroyo Grande. I was ready. I fixed up my vet pack and had no call scheduled Friday afternoon through Sunday lunch. I showed up in time to help with the pre-screening health checks. The riders continued to arrive as twilight and darkness descended, and it was getting hard to see the horses at their trot. Another vet wanted to know if any of us had a stronger flashlight. I told him I did, drove the truck next to the trotting lane, opened my side panel, and plugged in a super handheld light. It ran off my 12-volt system and could have been used to look for escaped convicts. The vets were impressed. I was proud. A horse collapsed during the ride Saturday, after it was back in camp. Dr. Harley Booz from Arroyo Grande took over the case. Calling into his office ten or so miles down the road, he had them bring up 12 liters of lactate ringer solution, LRS, a sterile electrolyte solution that goes directly into the vein. Harley placed an IV catheter into the jugular vein and started rushing liter after liter of the LRS solution into the horse. He gave additional meds IV as well. The horse recovered and I was impressed, now determined to come to these trail rides better prepared for these neat cases, these catastrophes. That's the type of medicine I wanted to offer. I spent the next few months reading about the imbalances in overstressed equine athletes and developed a protocol which I typed out and put into my ambulatory notebook. Besides massive injections of LRS right into the vein, I also created a salt mixture containing the primary electrolytes needed by a downed horse. This salt mix was combined with water and pumped into the stomach via a nasogastric tube, allowing a much more rapid influx of needed water and electrolytes into the horse. The next year, I was again called out to vet the Tar Springs trail ride. An eight-year-old gelding went down after getting back to camp, and I took over the case. The horse dropped and was now laying on his right side. I shaved the neck region and prepped it for an IV catheter insertion. I placed the catheter, affixing tape on either side of it, using these tape edges to suture the taped catheter to the horse's skin. It was a safety feature. If the horse started to move or roll, the sutured catheter remained in place. I started an IV drip as fast as it could drain into the vein. I also gave an IV injection of banamine, a potent NSAID, and some vials of KCL, or potassium chloride. These bottles contain the electrolyte potassium, which is an in LRS. Here, hold this bag up like this. Let the fluid rush in, I told a helper, then walked to the truck. Pulling out the bucket, I poured a measured amount of a salt mix into it. Can you fill this bucket with water, please? Make sure you swirl it to dissolve the salts. Handing the bucket off, I rummaged for the stomach tube and the stomach pump. Pulling out the tube of KY, I walked back to the horse. After setting the nasogastric tube in position, I pumped the electrolyte solution into the stomach and went back to switch out another liter of LRS for the neck drip. The IV catheter was rushing electrolytes and water directly into the vein. The horse became responsive. I pumped another two gallons of salt solution into the stomach and continued the IV push. Slowly, the horse came back to life. The gums turned from a bluish color to pink. His breathing slowed to normal. The eyes started to open and the horse began to blink. Fifteen minutes later, he rolled himself off his side, put both front legs out in front of him, and rose on four unsteady feet. Soon he was up and not weaving. 
I had saved him because I prepared myself adequately. Inwardly, I was happy, proud, and fulfilled. End of chapter. Thank you, Brian Ortiz, for narrating chapter 23 of my autobiography, Fear of Failure. I'll end the podcast with one of Mary's cowboy songs, I Ride in Old Paint. I ride in old paint. I lead an old den. I'm going to Montana to throw the hula hen. They feed in the coulee. They water in the draw. Their tails are all matted. Their backs are all raw. Right around little doggies. Right around them slow. For the fiery and snuffy are raring to go. Old Bill Jones had a daughter and a son. His son went to college. His daughter went wrong. His wife got shot in a pole room fight. But still he keeps singing from morning to night. Right around little doggies, right around them slow. For the fiery and snuff it are raring to go. When I die, don't you bury me at all. Settle up my pony and lead him from his stall. Tie my bones to his back. Turn our faces to the west. And we'll ride the prairie that we love the best. Ride around, little doggies, ride around them slow. For the fiery and snuff it are raring to go. Thank you all for listening. You can follow the story on my blog, jeadvm.com. Once on my blog's front page, go to the menu, pick My Books, and click on Fear of Failure. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book, or an e-book, as well as an 11-disc audiobook set, or can be downloaded from the audiobook site ACX. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com.